Hi, this is Jason Smith, and I wanted to take a moment before we start to let you know that we're approaching the end of this second season of Digital Jung. The next episode of this season will be the last, and it's scheduled to be released on June 23rd, 2022. I'll be taking an extended summer break for July and August and returning with a whole new season of episodes starting in the fall. I'm grateful to all of my listeners, to all of you, and I look forward to continuing to be able to bring Digital Jung to you for the rest of this season and beyond. Welcome to Digital Yum, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious. And in this episode, I present some highlights and excerpts from a recent talk that I gave titled Living a Symbolic Life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Last month, I had the privilege of giving a talk to an organization called the Community for Integrative Learning. The subject of my presentation was on the cultivation of what I call symbolic sensitivity, and it was titled Living a Symbolic Life. And in what follows here, I've selected a few excerpts from that evening to share with you. This talk was presented via Zoom on an unseasonably cool spring evening. You may hear the clink of pellets in my pellet stove, which was running in the background, as well as the rustling of my papers and lecture notes. I've done what I can to clean up the rest of the sound quality as much as I was able. I hope you enjoy these highlights from Living a Symbolic Life. Theologian uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel describes two different kinds of thinking. He talks about conceptual thinking and situational thinking. Conceptual thinking being the thinking in ideas and information. By situational thinking, he's talking about the human situation, what it means to be a human being, the situation of the person in life, the situation of their relationship to the cosmos. So where conceptual thinking deals with 
knowledge and information. Situational thinking deals with those issues, he says, on which we stake our existence. Those issues on which we stake our existence, those things uh, uh, that involve our, our whole being. Uh, and so in talking about how we cultivate a symbolic life, we have to think of something like a devotional attitude taking up something like uh, uh, a sense of the devotional or the devout, where we invest not only our intelligence, but uh, our fullness of being, our emotional selves, our relational selves. It involves a, a full relationship uh, of ourselves with this deeper dimension of experience. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to start with a, a, an awareness or what we might call an attitude uh, in which we understand the symbol, whatever that symbol may be, whether it's the symbols of a particular religious tradition, the symbols that come up in our dreams, the symbols that are found in myths and fairy tales and literature and even movies, film, uh, an attitude that understands that symbols are speaking a truth, that they're, they're, they're revelatory of something, they're revealing something, they're not necessarily telling a literal truth, but they're telling something like a, a truth that has always been, a truth that always is, a truth that is now. Um, and we'll, th this will develop as, as we go through this evening. Again, I'll go back to Heschel. This is a quote from his book, Man is Not Alone. He says, uh, we go out to meet the world, not only by way of expediency, but also by way of wonder. In the first, he says, we accumulate information in order to dominate. And in the second, we deepen our appreciation in order to respond. In the first, we accumulate information in order to dominate. In the second, we deepen our appreciation in order to respond. And then he says, power is the language of expediency and poetry is the language of wonder. And we have to use something like a poetic language, a symbolic language. Um, we have to use uh, uh, a, a language that alludes to what can't be named, right? Because what the symbol points to, what it refers to, always remains elusive. It remains uh, hidden. It has a quality of being transcendent. Um, and so the, the, the only language that we can use is something like a poetic language. And this is, this is what the, uh, uh, the symbol speaks to us. It's a, it's a piece of poetry that, that points us towards something 
that ultimately can't be known in its fullness. And so when we respond to it, we have to respond uh, the way we would to uh, a piece of poetry or to a piece of art and not analyzing it, but experiencing it. This is a quote from uh, Edward Edinger talking about the symbolic land. best possible expression for something that can't be expressed in any other way. So the best way to talk about symbols is to make use of symbols. It's not to try to define them or translate them into rational language, but to try to use the symbolic language itself to get a sense of what's behind the symbol. That's what I'm going to try to do uh, tonight. This is Jung uh, talking about the difference between symbolic imagery, in particular dogma, religious dogma, and scientific theory. Says Edinger, that's the greatest threat to humanity which is a huge statement. Meaninglessness is the greatest threat to humanity. If we don't have the symbolic, or before we have a symbolic understanding, again, this is Edinger, he says, what we have are symptoms. If there are no symbols, we have symptoms. We have a, a, a sense of something wrong that we can't make sense of something that it doesn't work or uh, uh, feels out of place, but it's meaningless. It doesn't have a, a, a place in the story of our lives. And the move from symptom to symbol is a move from meaninglessness to meaning, from a sense of uh, uh, some coherence to our own story. That doesn't make the the suffering that comes with the symptom necessarily disappear, but it gives us some relationship to it, some way of uh, integrating it or understanding it uh, so that uh, the suffering, the pain uh, makes sense. And in that way is lessened somehow. And so this move from symptom to symbol, this move from, uh, meaninglessness to meaning is kind of like a move from chaos to cosmos, right? It's that, that, uh, that place of creation in, in, the, in the beginning. There's nothing but chaos. The spirit of God hovers over the waters and out of that comes cosmos. Out of that comes creation and order and structure. Chaos moves to cosmos. One of the things that I'm going to use, I'm going to talk about, uh, as I said, I'm going to talk about the figure of wisdom. Uh, most of the images that I have on this PowerPoint uh, have different images of the, the, the figure of wisdom. Uh, 
I'm primarily focusing on the figure of wisdom in the biblical tradition, but I've included other wisdom figures from different traditions as well in, in some of the, the images. Wisdom in the biblical tradition was present with God at the beginning of creation. It's wisdom, uh, in a sense, who uh, is the active part of the creation. It's the active dimension. So wisdom is the wisdom of God. But she is a personification, and, and there are some characteristics that she has. And as we go through and talk about how do we cultivate the symbolic life, I'm going to talk about wisdom's characteristics uh, and how they translate for us. Just before I get to that, let me just quickly uh, talk about symbols. And that's what I want to go into now is this experience of, uh, of that whole. And I want to use the image of, as I said, the biblical figure of wisdom. This is what uh, it says in uh, the book of Proverbs about wisdom. As happy as the one who has found wisdom, the one who has acquired understanding, for wisdom is more profitable than silver, and the gain she brings is better than gold. She is a tree of life to those who grasp her, and to those and those who hold fast to her are safe. By wisdom, the Lord laid the found, earth's foundations, and by understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the springs of the deep burst forth and the clouds dropped dew. So here's that experience of the foundations being laid. Here's that experience of moving from chaos to cosmos, right? And it happens through this experience of wisdom. She is a tree of life to those who grasp her. We can think of wisdom as something like uh, uh, the personification of God's wisdom uh, or uh, the kind of the brightness or effulgence of the divine. Uh, this has parallels in other traditions. In the Hindu tradition, there is the figure of Shakti. And Shakti is that uh, energy through which the uh, the, the material universe forms. It's the, the, the active, the active side of the divine energy. And Shiva, her spouse, is kind of the immovable one uh, in the background. And Shakti is the one who sets things in motion. In this, in this tradition, in the biblical tradition, it's God who is in the background and it's wisdom who sets things in motion, in a sense. There's also a similar uh, dynamic in Taoism. In uh, the uh, quality of what's called uh, day. So there's the, in the book, in Taoism, there's the book, the Tao Te Ching. And that middle word day, T-E, 
is uh, translated as uh, something like virtue. So uh, day is the virtue of Tao, the virtue of the way, the strength and the power and the energy of Tao. Um, and so uh, I'm just uh, reading here. It says um, day means virtue, both in the sense of moral character, as well as power to act. Virtue is the manifestation of the way. The way is what virtue contains. The Tao is what virtue contains. Um, without the way, virtue would have no power. Without virtue, the way would have no appearance. So it's through virtue, it's through day that Tao gains its appearance. So there's a similar parallel here that we're pointing to with, with wisdom. Without wisdom, uh, there wouldn't be the appearance uh, of, the, of the divine energy. Wisdom is the appearance of that. We can think of the symbol as a, having a similar kind of quality. Without the symbol, that unknown and unexpressible mystery behind it, can't be known. And so the symbol is the appearance of that unknowable, ineffable, transcendent depth. We need the, the, the appearance. So the symbol, in a sense, I'm using wisdom as a symbol for the symbol. Here's one of the things that wisdom says about this. giving of oneself. What we know about wisdom is uh, she makes herself known to all who desire knowledge of her. This is again in the book of wisdom. Uh, in fact, it's uh, the verses right before this one on the screen. She's quick to make herself known to all who desire knowledge of her. The one who rises early in search of her will not grow weary in the quest. For they will find her seated at their door. To meditate on her is prudence in its perfect shape. And to be vigilant in her cause is the short way to freedom from care. And she herself searches far and wide for those who are worthy of her. And on their daily path, she appears to them with kindly intent, meeting them halfway in all their purposes. So what we learn about wisdom in, in this verse is that we have to go out to meet her. We have to seek her out. And if we do that, she makes herself known to us. She, she comes to us. Um, I'm going to share a quote. This is actually from uh, Mary Oliver, the poet, writing about uh, what it means to engage in poetry, to write a poem. And this, is, this goes with this idea of 
going out to meet wisdom and having her reveal herself to us. Mary Oliver says this, she says, the part of the psyche that works in concert with consciousness and supplies a necessary part of the poem, the heat of a star as opposed to the shape of a star, the part of the psyche that provides the heat of the star and not just the outline, not just the shape. This part of the psyche exists in a mysterious, unmapped zone, not unconscious, she says, not subconscious, but cautious. It learns quickly what sort of courtship this is going to be. Say you promise to be at your desk in the evenings from seven to nine. It waits, it watches. If you are reliably there, it begins to show itself. Soon it begins to arrive when you do. But if you are only there sometimes and are frequently late or inattentive, it will appear fleetingly or it will not appear at all. If you are loyal to it and reliable, she says, if you show up, if you go in search of wisdom, she will show up. She will appear. She will meet you halfway. But if you are unreliable, sometimes there, sometimes not, she may appear sometimes or she may not appear at all. As with the muse, so with wisdom, there has to be a sense in which even though we cannot make her appear, even though we cannot produce a symbol out of our own willing, even though we can't uh, uh, possess wisdom, we have to put ourselves there in some kind of investment, some kind of effort. We have to show up if we want it to show up, if we want her to show up. This is what Jung writes. He says, uh, he's talking about a symbolic attitude. He says, uh, whether something is symbolic depends upon the attitude of the observer. So he says, the attitude that takes a phenomenon as symbolic may be called, for short, the symbolic attitude. It's only partially justified by the actual behavior of things. For the rest, it is the outcome of a definite view of the world which assigns meanings to events, whether great or small, and attaches to this meaning a greater value than to bare facts. If we want to experience the symbolic, we have to be ready to see things symbolically. We have to have a symbolic attitude. We have to see things as meaningful. The philosopher Plotinus says, all teams with symbols. Reality, because it, it happens between us and the symbol. A relationship starts to open up between us and the experience. Carl Karenyi, who uh, wrote a lot about mythology and, and collaborated with Jung, talks about the importance of 
letting the symbols of mythology speak for themselves and learning how to simply listen to them. And he says that we need to develop a special ear for that way of listening. Just the way that we need a special ear for music or poetry, he says. Again, here's that language of poetry. The, the, the people who study myths and symbols and religion keep coming back to the poetic as a way to understand the kind of language and sensibility that's needed to experience the symbol. And he says here uh, in, in relationship to the, the mythological symbol, Karenyi says, ear means resonance. To, to develop the, the proper kind of ear is to, to uh, experience the resonance of something. And that means a sympathetic pouring out of oneself, a sympathetic pouring out of oneself. You can't sit back and just say, prove it to me. You have to invest yourself. You have to go out and meet wisdom if she is going to come and uh, meet you. One of the ways that we can think about this, or at least one of the ways that I can. And in the middle of this book, Ecclesiasticus 24, chapter 24, wisdom says this about herself. She says, come to me, all you who desire me, and eat your fill of my fruit. To think of me is sweeter than honey, to possess me sweeter than the honeycomb. Whoever feeds on me will hunger for more, and whoever drinks from me will thirst for more. Whoever feeds on me will hunger for more, and whoever thirsts, whoever drinks from me will thirst for more. This is a very different statement from what we might expect, right? Uh, in the in the Gospels, Jesus will say, "Whoever drinks the water of the, the living water that I give will never thirst again." That's what we expect. But wisdom says something different. She says, whoever feeds on me will hunger for more. Whoever drinks from me will thirst for more. When we engage in the symbolic life, it's not that we are satisfied. We don't come to some place of rest. We don't come to some place of stasis or uh, a kind of return to unconsciousness. We're not numbed. Instead, we're awakened. The longing for more aliveness is awakened in us. The longing to learn more. So if we learn something and we get excited, we want to know more. If we taste some of that wisdom, we want more of it. That's what this is speaking to. It brings us alive. It motivates us. It doesn't numb us and uh, turn us into passive consumers, right? Where we, we just take in information, we just 
watch YouTube or Netflix or something and we zone out, that has its place. But this is more uh, sparking up the, the, the hunger for things, the desire for things, the taste. We taste something we want more. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.